Welcome to the Saltwater Strategist podcast from the Australian Naval Institute. In this series, we talk to a range of domestic and international military strategy planners, academics, historians, policy advisors, current and ex-naval officers to debate and discuss maritime and naval strategy in a rapidly evolving geopolitical landscape in the Pacific and Indian Oceans. I'm Simon Wallstrom from the Australian Naval Institute, and this podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, BA Systems. I'm not anticipating a war on Taiwan in 26, but I am anticipating a lot of pressure. And if we are not in a position to offer credible deterrence, then it may well invite adventurism. So here we are in 2023, another year rests in front of us that will no doubt provide several twists and turns, some predicted, and again, probably some not. As we reflect on 2022 from a geopolitical, defence and security perspective, one would find it hard to argue against it possibly not being an annus horribilis for the global community, and in particular the West. From a global perspective, we were still dealing with the aftermath and tail end of COVID-19, the illegal invasion of Ukraine by Russia, and the rise of some official and unofficial right-wing groups in Europe, with most recently an election in Israel of a significant right-wing political party, have all significantly added more spice into what is already a hot environment. Then closer to home, we saw significant domestic developments in 2022, such as the election of a new federal government, Labour, under the stewardship of Anthony Albanese, to the Defence Strategic Review. And then in December, we saw a flurry of defence cooperation agreements involving traditional allies of Australia, such as Canada and Japan, who have joined forces to share intelligence and military exercises. So what does this all mean for 2023? Here to reflect on those developments in terms of the so what is Professor John Blacksland. John is currently Professor of International Security and Intelligence Studies in the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre at the Coral Bell School of Asia Pacific Affairs, College of Asia and the Pacific at the Australian National University. A former officer with the Australian Army with appointments including Chief Intelligence Staff Officer at HQ Joint Operations Command, Australian Defence Attaché in Thailand and Myanmar, with multiple deployments and tours overseas. Professor Blacksland now teaches on intelligence and security and lectures regularly at the ANU Strategic and Defence Studies Centre and National Security College, as well as at the Australian Defence College, the Australian Defence Force Academy and Royal Military College Duntroon. A respected military historian and the author of multiple books, including the official history of the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation, known as ASIO. John is also a regular commentator on television news channels here in Australia and overseas, and is known for his geostrategic SWOT analysis for Australia and his advocacy for an Australian universal scheme of national and community service. John, it's an absolute pleasure to have you today uh, to talk through what uh, is a serious, sweet uh, and very interesting development. Thank you very much for those very, very warm and kind words. It's really a pleasure to be here with you today. Thank you, John. Before we do discuss some of those significant 22 events uh, and those projections into, into 23, where we are today, with, of course, a, a bit of a sort of maritime and naval flavour uh, and, and broader than that. But before that, um, and before we dive into that, a quick view of 22 from your perspective, John, from a from a historian's perspective in terms of what does it 
telling us or what does it tell us or not tell us and, and how concerned should we be? Yeah, thanks, Simon. I, the word that captures it for me is one of the doppelganger Deutsche words, Zeitenwender, the idea of a turning point. This is something that when you think about what happened in 2022, so much started to look very different to what had preceded 2022. I mean, COVID was winding down. Uh, we had that period of 2020, 21 being locked down. 22 was the opening up. Then we had, of course, the, the war in Ukraine, which has led Olaf Scholz to, to coin the phrase, Zeitenwender, the turning point. And, you know, what looked like initially is going to be a quick collapse, much like the Afghanistan government had collapsed. Um, you know, a US-backed regime collapsing, of course, not the case with, the, with Ukraine and transformed the equ equation. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the next one was the, the Pelosi visit to Taiwan and the reaction from Xi in China mm. to the Pelosi visit and the, the display of martial prowess and the unbearing of the fangs, if you like, mm. Mm. Uh, that was sent a shiver down spines around the world. It um, kind of caught uh, Xi Jinping out, really, to some degree, I suppose, that visit, didn't it? And, and do you think that's how why he reacted the way he did? Or So I think he had anticipated such a visit along those lines for some time because the operations that were launched subsequently, which lasted for weeks, uh, were not the kinds of operations you can turn on on a dime unless you've done a lot of prior preparation and planning. Mm -hmm. It was like a switch was flicked, you know, and all of a sudden they could do this and sustain it for weeks. Now, that is, that is extraordinary. Um, and so it was a demonstration of their martial prowess and of their resolve um, and then, of course, it's very interesting because people are saying, oh, Nancy Pelosi did the wrong thing going there. I, I'm actually much more sanguine about it because the Chinese were looking for an excuse to do this. Mm. They had it locked and loaded. So it took Pelosi, but it might well have been someone else at some other juncture. So to blame Pelosi for this, it's to miss misread the cues, mm, in my mm, view. Mm, mm. Um, but very interesting after that, of course, is the fact that Xi gets his, you know, the, the chairman for life appointment confirmed effectively and who, you know, hustled out of the room. It's like, wow, really powerful demonstration of Xi being now the master, at least him trying to demonstrate he's the master. Very reminiscent of when Vladimir Putin all those years ago changed the Russian constitution as well and Absolutely. saw himself so, I mean, in forever. Yeah, that's right. Interesting. Yeah. But it's interesting also because we see from there an inflection point away from the wolf warrior language. So because it's interesting because she no longer needs it. He's he's got himself confirmed. He's you know shown his brawn, if mm. you like. Mm. He's rippled his muscles. Got his vote of confidence and yeah. and and shown his martial prowess. Mm. Mm. And he's subsequently backed off. But there's just a couple more ones that are kind of big picture things for us for the Pacific. Uh, the Pacific Partnership Strategy that the United States articulates, which seems to be, you know, they have that saying, you know, it's a Churchillian one. He gets attributed for most good quotes. <laughs> yeah. um, the Americans can always be trusted to do the right thing once they've tried everything else. 
And it looks like in this case they've actually learned from the Chinese because Wang Yi had done this lap of the Pacific just as we had the the elections Mm. and I think he had anticipated it would take longer to get resolution in Parliament in Australia and, and of course, it would happen pretty quickly. But So the trip was halfway through when when we knew the outcome and Penny Wong's out there in a flash countering Mm. the Mm. effects. And and anyway, Wang Yi's, you know, this bully boy kind of take it or leave it, you know, one size fits all solution. Mm. The Biden administration looks on and says, well, that's not going to work. That's not the approach to take. Let's ask the Pacific countries what they would like. So they even managed to get Manasseh Sogavari to come along, who just signed this deal with with the Chinese, right? The security arrangement. Yeah. So that was a bit of a coup by the by the Americans. And it's interesting, John, you mentioned that because as it happens in real life, you don't really appreciate it unless you're really studying it how quickly some of those things are overlapping or happening at the same time. Exactly. Well, and the when other you one, do look back, you go, actually, there was a lot of overlap there that, enormous, that was yeah. influencing each and every one of those activities. Absolutely, Simon. And the other one where there's overlap, there's continuity but change is over the move from Scott Morrison to Albanese as Prime Minister and the new, the tone, you know, the, the breath of fresh air, even though substantively mm. very little changes mm. rhetorically, it's enormous. And when you're dealing with, you know, the dragon where form precedes function, where words matter enormously, mm. uh, where a degree of deference actually gets you a lot, then that makes a big difference. So we see a, mm. a significant shift there. And that now how much of that is because of Albo, uh, Penny Wong and Richard Miles, and how much of that is because of uh, Xi's shift away from wolf warrior diplomacy once his firm, in, he's got his grip on power consolidated. Uh, how much of this is a legacy of the muscling up of the ScoMo years? Uh, you know, none of us can really say authoritatively which one it is, mm. but it's a mix. Oh. They're all in there, okay? Absolutely. Um, and in that mix, of course, is also the issues of, of the Quad and AUKUS, uh, and, you know, the quad which had been bubbling away and building up for quite some time and really only coming to the coming to the fore because India wants it to happen. Indians an interesting dynamic on yeah, this. And we've already touched it in this series and I'm yeah. sure we will next in yeah. series two. But there is definitely a big conversation to be had around the Indian yeah. role in all of this, actually. And, and linked to that, of course, is the agreements we've, we've signed with India and with Japan, you know, in the last, in the closing weeks of, of 2022. Mm. Uh, security and economic agreements that have mm. really ratcheted up the relationship both with Japan and with India. But interesting also, ratcheting up the relationship with Indonesia because the Indonesia-Australia Comprehensive Economic Partnership Agreement got ratified and it's come into force. So we've seen the prospect for Australia-Indonesia relations really now opening up as well with a new government, not the one that snubbed them over AUKUS, you know, where Richard Miles and, oh, but sorry, uh, Peter Dutton, Peter Dutton mm. and Maurice Payne mm. went to visit Retna Masudi and Prabowo days before announcing AUKUS but not telling them. It's like, really? Could we that not have handled that differently? In retrospect, wasn't it? I mean, yes. it may be well-informed at the time, but uh, uh, so, well, well, you <laughs> know, there was, not, a, but... <laughs> there was a huge snub uh, and the Indonesians feel those kind of, uh, look, we looked like the Dutch, you know. Yeah. Our uniforms look like the Dutch too. And uh, come every now and then we come across as haughty as the Dutch did, you know, the colonial, former colonial masters. And we're just not attuned to these sensitivities and we really need to be 
doing a lot. We better. did certainly lose our our diplomacy, our overseas diplomacy and foreign policy touch, let's say, or our ability to be in touch. Yeah, for, look, for look, quite a few fair, years. To be fair to Maurice Payne, she was working hard at sub-regional security arrangements, so the counter-terrorism initiatives, yeah. you know, progressing on the Bali program mm. process. Mm. You know, a number of initiatives were progressed, but rhetorically we kept putting our foot in it and, you know, really constrained, if not undermined, uh, some of the good work done in other in other domains. Yeah, absolutely. And people have long memories when it comes to that. I mean, they're still, what, still the largest Muslim country in the world. I mean, we're an island nation and continent and we're looking at this challenge and yeah. who sits right above us. Yeah. Well, you know, so, <laughs> every year for the last few years, nearly 10 years now, as I've been lecturing at Staff College, mm. I asked the Staff College students, we're going to talk about Indonesia and Southeast Asia, how many in the class of the of the Australians in the audience speak Bahasa, Indonesia, right? And it's incredibly small number, right? And I say to them, well, look, if this was the if this was the staff college in the UK, and you asked how many people speak French, if you didn't put your hand up, you'd be embarrassed, right? So how is it that our enormous and enormously consequential neighbour? is something we overlook. We literally and metaphorically skip over it on our way somewhere else. And it's like, folks, this is not some, you know, tin pot, second run African, you know, backwater. Mm. It's our immediate neighbour, the largest Muslim population, one of the largest democracies in the world, Mm. incredibly economically dynamic, incredibly strategically consequential. And when we have fought an existential crisis in the past, in 1941 and 42, guess where it was? On their home turf. You know, we have ships named Balakpapan, Labuan, uh, Tarakan. These are not names of Australian cities, folks. These are what is now Indonesia right? They are battlegrounds where we've, we've, we've had a bit of amnesia about the geographic significance of the real estate to our immediate north. So do you think that's a result of the, of the Australian Labor Party uh, recognising that themselves or there's an opportunity because of that shift in government that we had that the advisors externally have had another go and, and succeeded. And, and I suppose what I'm really trying to say there, John, is, you know, was it always never going to succeed with with the, you know, the Liberal National Party for whatever reason? And there was other focus, like you say. But, but for you know, and if you look at Bill Shorten in the past and even on the campaign trail for, you know, this election with uh, Albanese, you know, Indonesia actually, and Penny Wong, of course, mm. Indonesia's always in their language, always in their rhetoric, always been there. So is that because they're advised or they just inherently know it's the wrong thing to keep ignoring it? And thank God we've had a change of government in that sense, right? Yeah, I think it's probably a bit of both. Right. Um, and it's also a legacy of the circumstances. Let's not forget, we've had 20 years of the so-called global war on terror. You know, how on earth we could spend two decades fighting a a war against a method, you know. It just boggles the mind how we allowed ourselves to get in that predicament and the resources that were squandered, the attention, the relationships that atrophied during that period uh, in our neighbourhood in Southeast Asia and the Pacific Mm. and all Mm. of a sudden late in the peace we wake up to the fact that we're being outbid and outplayed Mm. uh, in our own neighbourhood and uh, we play catch up with Vuvali and the family, you know. Well, it just came across as a little bit 
too little too late. Was there ever a threat or was there still a threat that if we look at what China has been doing in terms of its incursions in the South Pacific with, you know, the Solomon Islands and some of the other uh, islands down there, was was there ever a threat that, you know, being courted by the PRC, Indonesia, mm. and we're, we're still sort of neck and neck or does Indonesia never sort well, of entertain, the, 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 entertain China? Yeah, it's an interesting question, Simon, because uh, Xi has an uncanny ability mm. to get up people's noses. Mm. Um, and the way they've handled uh, Indonesia's territorial claims and their exclusive economic zone around Natuna Island just boggles the mind. And the own indigenous Muslim community in China probably yeah, has not gone down too no, well exactly in, right. in well, Jakarta, I suppose. Although that's something, you know, out of sight, out of mind mm. uh, to a certain extent. It's not, mm. yes, it's problematic, but it's not, mm. doesn't make headlines in the Jakarta Post and the, you know, Indonesian language newspapers. Natuna Sea, though, does. In, you know, fishing incursions and the and the inability of the Indonesian fishing vessels to operate freely and for a Chinese maritime militia to operate, uh, you mm. know, in, in an intimidating manner against uh, Indonesian vessels, also Vietnamese vessels, let's not forget. So the Vietnamese have been very active in this space too. Absolutely, but yeah. the Vietnamese at least are not claiming that part of the EEZ as being theirs. They recognise it as Indonesian. Uh, China does not. Breaking the law, they don't yeah, want yeah, just, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then you've got the whole question about, it, you know, the response to the COVID and the, the Sinovac and, and the, the, the kind of vaccine diplomacy we've seen out of China to try and buy influence, understandably, in, in Indonesia. We've tried, we try and buy influence too, so everybody does it, and not picking on China from that point of view. But uh, similarly... Infrastructure projects, the fast train, you know, the train lines, uh, uh, Jakarta, Bandung, Bandung, Surabaya, really important links that mm. the Japan has bid for and then been outbid by China. Um, so there's a lot of dynamics at, at play over over the economic and security dimensions. And 99% of our trade in, in and out is is on the sea and no yeah. doubt a large amount of that will transit through Indonesian territory. Of course, the, the, territory, the right. overwhelming majority of it transits through those straits. Yeah, you know? Exactly. Now, we don't, we're not overly concerned directly about the Malacca Strait, but indirectly we're enormously concerned because of the enormous significance to the East Asian states and their prosperity for the uh, access to particularly oil and gas through the Malacca Strait. Okay, now other trade as well, but particularly oil um, and gas and, and, and other primary resources that go through the Malacca Strait. For us, it's obviously the Lombok, Sunda and Weta, uh, and to a lesser extent, the Torres Straits. And now this is the thing, you know, when we talk about the defence of Australia, you can't really talk about the defence of Australia without talking about those straits. You know, they are historically through which any threat to Australia has emerged. Uh, uh, and to be fair, around to the east, around Rabaul and the Solomon Islands. So to the east uh, and down the southeast through New Guinea, uh, PNG, and through the Indonesian, what's now, what was the Dutch East Indies, now the Indonesian archipelago. Mm, mm, mm. All of that incredibly consequential, vital terrain, if you like, yeah, for absolutely. the defence of Australia. Yeah. So the Belts and Road sort of uh, initiative didn't quite make it to Indonesia in, in terms of full throttle. Maybe so, it was on the plan. And, yeah, and so, luckily we've had this this awakening, as you sort of described. Uh, yeah, actually, yeah. hold on, there's a 
hoofing bloody country next door that we yeah we need to start respecting. We need to respect and engage much more constructively. And maybe we'll touch on it a bit later, but we're, we're starting to see these building of these sort of regional packs and alliance because, and again, we'll, we'll touch on that sort of potential threat window being three years if there's any move on Taiwan by by Xi Jinping. Is yeah. Everyone's notionally thinking it's in three to four years max. Yeah. The only way we're going to counter that is is by coming together as a community, and we'll come onto the DSR pieces mm-hmm. and what that really means and what can you really do. Mm-hmm. So, building an Indonesia pact, a Malaysia pact, you know, and I, I read today that Talisman Sabre in twenty three as part of the Australian Defence Force contingent, it's going to have Fiji, PNG, and Tonga. Brilliant, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. So, there's another little grouping there, all of whom have been critical to our success yeah. when we've conducted operations in the Pacific, particularly in places like Bougainville, Solomons and East Timor. Yes. They've all been really important contributors. Yeah. So I, I kind of think of this in my mind as a picture, like a big jigsaw puzzle or game of chess. You know, we're, we're getting all these, you know, collaborations and collectives together because it's the only way we're going to accelerate ourselves to be ready for anything. Yeah. Potentially, hopefully it won't. Mm. And Indonesia has to be a part of that. You know, we probably India, if we think of it as like a triangle of alliances. India's got its own priorities, though, that I, th- I think we need to be careful about not banking too much on what we can expect out of that relationship. They've just got their own priorities. You know, they're, they're, they've, got, uh, they've got other issues. You know, they, they, are, they are a land power in Asia facing two nuclear-armed adversaries in Pakistan and China. Yeah. So, come on, what, what can we do? physically in that space, other than offer the moral support and diplomatic support, it's not a huge amount our boutique Australian Defence Force can do to actually help them in those circumstances, and they don't really want it anyway. Interesting. So with all those events then that that have evolved in in 22, and I was just going to come back on those events certainly did trigger the turning point, and I won't try to (laughs) – my my, my German's not as good as yours, John. But certainly those events that did occur, whether or not it was COVID, which, again, we've actually seen a reemergence of some of the the diplomatic challenges Mm. with China – you know, now, you know, opening its borders for its citizens to travel, but they're all being tested, which is another slight in, in Xi Jinping's eyes, a tension point. But let's not so forget, gone... only 18 months ago, we were all being tested if you went anyway, anyway. Yeah. This is really, you know, you can make as much of a slight of this as you wish or not. This is all up to him. If he wants to make a big deal of it, that's his call. But he could choose to do the latter. Of course. But it hasn't gone away. So that, no. you know, COVID, I, you know, I said, you know, in the intro that hopefully we've seen the worst of it and we're behind it, but we just don't know at the moment. No. But, so those events certainly did trigger a turning point. Yeah. But those events themselves didn't necessarily actually go on a trajectory of expectation um, to allow that turning point to have some sort of prediction. Right. If we think about um, r- the Russian Federation invading Ukraine, mm. we all thought it would be over very quickly. Well, we all, we, well none of us really thought it was going to happen. You know? well, well, there was we that just thought it was completely unreasonable. You know? mm. Putin's not that crazy, is he? He might use the little green men in, to get Crimea and the Donbass, but to take Kiev with the gloves off, exposed mm. to the world, it mm. just seemed surely not. And then yeah. when he did, surely he'll do it quickly. And yeah. Then, and and, and none of those. both counts. Yeah, so it's almost like the turning point when, you know, 45 degrees and then it went another 45 degrees mm. and another 45 degrees, you know, and the way that the Ukrainian people have defended their sovereignty is, is much to be admired. Oh, it's a mind-boggling as well. Of course, NATO's been indirectly involved. 
And the reason I brought Ukraine up, um, because those, those, those events have that sort of butterfly effect, uh, those turning points, as you say. But there is, there is a relationship between what is happening in Ukraine in terms of how China plans its next steps as well and how mm. it's been watching that. Absolutely. And one of the big things that Hal Brands in the US has come out is, you know, maybe that Xi Jinping's actually seen that the nuclear deterrent, which we know has been thrown around by, you know, the Russian Federation and, 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 and Putin, yeah. just allows this to sort of stagnate and move and not quite reach a climax in, in any shape or form. Yeah. So we have to just worry about that in the sense that we've still got North Korea yeah. who are planning another test shortly, their first since 2017 maybe. Mm. Uh, so they haven't done one for a while, maybe a bit later, well, but certainly a few years. Nuclear test. Yes, yeah. yeah. So they've got that whole dynamic there and that has a direct knock-on effect to what's happening, you know, in terms of our neighbourhood and therefore us. So to, to ignore what's happening in Ukraine from an Australian perspective, yeah. in terms of our planning, our posture, is an oversight, yeah. and I know we're not, yeah. but even at the general public level, we you know we just have to understand that, and this is what makes it kind of global, right? Yeah. It's definitely global. You know, we've seen the Iranian Navy only just this week, you know, transiting our waters, which they've got the right to do. Yeah, and much and like... we're on watch with yeah, our... Yeah, and NATO Kiwi ships have done it, uh, the Chinese have done it, the Russians do it periodically. They came down for the G20 when Tony Abbott hosted them in Brisbane. I do you remember know, that. Uh, it's actually, there's no that. law against that, you know. Of course. It's they're within their rights. But I suppose where I'm going, and this is where I want to get your view, John, is that if we look historically back at some of the major wars in history, that there's always a slow burn and then there's a sort of a coming together of two clubs and they start to sort of just form teams. If we see what's in, you know, as I mentioned in the, in the intro, we, we, we've even seen the rise in Europe, in stable countries in Europe of the right wing. You know, look what happened in Germany, you know. Look what's just happened in Israel. Yeah. Um, Israel and, is particularly yeah. unnerving. Yeah. But to be fair, uh, let's, not, let's not forget the right wing did not win in France and the True. right wing, even where they did win in Italy, have in practice, so far at least, tended towards the middle. They mm. policy-wise have tended towards moderation uh, and avoiding uh, excess. Now, that's early days, obviously, but I, I don't know. I'm, I'm reasonably optimistic about the the self-writing ability of the buoyant democracy with good ballast. I suppose where I, in my head where I was going is as the leadership of the PRC as a whole done their own reflection on those events and those twists and turns mm, and mm. what's happening and how slightly isolated, say, Putin's become and mm. indirectly NATO supported, that actually the way we're going to have to step up if we want to reclaim Taiwan which we've stated we will do, and the West has said we will stop you doing that, you know, so we, we've drawn the line. Um, they've recognised that actually they need coalitions themselves. Now, they've just done their annual China Sea testing with, um, the, with, the, with Russians. the Russians. Yeah, multifaceted. I mean, it looked like it was a pretty comprehensive mm. set of naval uh, exercises that have been conducted that have been, you know, building over a decade now. So, you know, the, this is anti-submarine warfare, anti-air warfare, anti-surface warfare. This is multiple vessels, serious warships, land, sea. It's their impact almost, air, isn't it? Right? Subsurface, yeah. surface, 
uh, you know, multifaceted, a fairly complex set of activities right. which point to a level of collaboration between the PLAN and the Russian Navy mm. that, let's not forget, this is only about 300 kilometres north of the Senkaku yes. slash Tiayu Islands. This is where this exercise took place. And this is where Japan gets a little bit hot under the collar. Uh, so right? this, is, yeah. this is something the Japanese get very nervous about, yeah. okay, because Russia has always been pretty darned adversarial towards Japan ever since they, in the last week of the Second World War, right. snuck in and took, you know, the island chain to the north, yeah, the north right. of Hokkaido. Yeah. And have been on a trajectory as a democracy ever since that clearly we now know, isn't, certainly not where Vladimir Putin wanted ever Russia to go. So, exactly. you know, yeah. even even at that sort of level. And, and, and now you're seeing, and China mm. and, Japan and Russia doing this, they're trying to discredit Japan as a still a kind of fascist warmongering state that's uh, that's only just below the surface. You scratch and you get a Japan imperialism, which is, in my view, completely unfounded. Uh, sure. it, it's not completely unfounded, but it is largely unfounded. I mean, the, Japan, like any uh, liberal democracy, has its warts and all, you know. And, and they're struggling as a society with that acceptance still to this day. Absolutely. And I think you and I actually were on the deck of HMS Sydney during Indo-Pak last yes. year. Yeah, that's right. Where we had the, the Japanese chief of staff, I think, for the Navy. Bingo. Who graciously stood up with the 7th Fleet Admiral and our CN at the time, Admiral mm. Noonan, and it was really interesting because that battle was clearly between, you know, yeah, the US the and Australia The Battle of the Coral Sea, yeah. That was, uh, and here he was. They oh. were the enemy. They were the adversary, yeah. And and our, our battle honours reflect the success we had in sinking Japanese ships and aircraft. And, and it's taken them a good 30 years to mentally get over that and accept the wrongs that they have done, which brings me on to the point that, we saw that flurry of agreements towards the end. If we think about building these coalition blocks, so, mm -hmm. you know, we saw Canada and Japan sign one, defence cooperation, and it was led by intelligence, but they said they're going to do defence exchanges, mm -hmm. you know, and, and maybe some, you know, military ex exercises together, which is fantastic. We clearly signed our own one with Japan as well, and there's talk of possibly Japan coming into the AUKUS agreement. And, and, and quite cutely then being called Jorkus, I read today. I'm a little bit sceptical of the, the prospects of that. Now, I may be okay. completely wrong, but I think uh, Japan, by and large, uh, can achieve its objectives and Australia can achieve its objectives in terms of what the bilateral relationship can do for each other without actually them formalising any partnership with the AUKUS arrangement. Now, I may be wrong, uh, you know, I'm not privy to the detailed deliberations mm. you know, that happen on the Hill or in Russell uh, or in, in the Pentagon or in, you know, in Tokyo for that matter. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, they've I, signed I, loads of these things. I think they signed with Korea, France, right. Germany, and, and, the and, UK recently. And, and, but in my discussions with diplomatic uh, representatives from mm. Japan here, they've always been fairly uh, sanguine about, fairly level-headed and sensible and uh, of the progress we've made and the fact that... In terms of their objectives, we, you know, a lot of it is already being delivered. So I don't know that there's a huge amount more that any formalising of Japan as part of AUKUS would would bring to it, except, I mean, arguably, you know, it might, might be more uh, uh, cosmetic than substantive because cosmetically you would include a non-Anglo non country in the mix. Yeah. Uh, and that would 
you know, it would change the optics, but it wouldn't change the rhetoric too much. China would still hate it, yes, uh, you yeah. know, and they'll still find angles to criticise it. And while we're on Japan, actually, it's a, it's a good segue point because, as we all know, us that are in the defence industry and defence mm. generally in Australia, that the, the fabled C-1000 programme, as it was once then called, was pretty much nailed on as far as most of us were aware that we were going to go with the Japanese solution, um, you know, which was sanctioned by um, Tony Prime Abbott Minister at the time. Fiat. Yeah. yeah, and then there was the, you know, the party room spill and Turnbull mm. came in and next thing we know it's been given to the French and that's all obviously the rest of history. It's, it's extraordinary but, how we could have bungled this so badly for so long. I know, right? The Defence Wipe of 2009 laid out the plan for, you know, yeah. an expanded submarine replacement fleet. But, yeah. but on that point, are, when we 13, made, 14 years later. Yeah, just uh, crazy. And, it, and this is why history is so important because we just keep seem to be falling in the same potholes all the time, even though we, we knew where it was and mm. we mm. put a thin veneer of some sort of, you know, balsa wood over the top and yeah. there we go, we collapse in it again. Yeah. But if my memory serves me correctly, when we made the announcement, Australia made the announcement that we'd signed this agreement with Japan just before Christmas, I, I don't know if you picked up on this, but it's interesting given what we've just spoke about, but there was, there was kind of like a veiled drop or hint around the Submarine Nuclear Task Force Group has now edged a lot closer mm. to its final objective as a result of this agreement with Japan which I found quite interesting. It was buried right in the middle yeah, of this thing. Yeah. And then it, it's, I started to think, okay, what does that mean? Because mm, mm. we're not going to get nuclear subs in this time frame. No, we're not. And we, if we would have stayed with the Japanese solution, there's a lot of people one. on the street that say, we probably would have had we'd our first boat by now. be just about coming off the, off the, off the slipway. Yeah. 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 So you're, you're right. I mean, if there was to be uh, Japan included, that would be a, a game changer for the prospects of a industry sharing arrangement for the next gen nuclear propulsion submarine and so I, I just don't know the dynamics in Japan well enough to see how how much skin they are prepared to prepared to lose in a political fight domestically for that question to be put to the Japanese people um, I, I don't I don't know that that's uh, all that valid. And one of the reasons why I don't is because uh, Japan, to get around its territory, it's a lot less exclusive. You know, their own maritime territories are a lot smaller than ours. Now, mm -hmm. if you want to operate, you know, a Soryu submarine, you can do operate most of your time undetected, submerged, and not uh, fall short of the, your expectations. Yeah, yeah. Because you're not having to go far. Mm -hmm. Whereas for Australia, you know, forget anything about South China Sea or, or let alone, you know, the, the choke points of the, the Indonesian archipelago, just getting from Perth to Darwin or Perth to Brisbane or Melbourne or Dar Adelaide, you can't transit without surfacing. The distances are too great. And with it's the, an international deployment yeah, in Europe. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So no one needs the, the subs we need for the ranges we need. And, and Japan just doesn't have that need for that kind of long-range, quick movement sub. They don't need it. Now, if I'm, I may be misreading the tea leaves, but I just don't, I don't find that that's a compelling argument. Britain and the United States have an established interest and need, and we have a clear and compelling rationale because... 
let's let's get down to the brass tacks. And the bottom line is that we know that conventional propulsion submarines, even with air-independent propulsion, Mm can't move fast and you will eventually have to surface. And if you do, with AI, with persistent surveillance and satellites and drones, you're probably going to get picked up. And the one virtue of spending all that time in a greasy, smelly submarine is stealth, right? If you lose stealth, why the blazes are you there, right? So, you you know, cri- people can criticise the, the Morrison government for the handling of AUKUS, and I have been one of them, mm-hmm. right, for how they handled and mishandled the French relationship. The bottom line is we need to get there fast. We need to get there with the ability to endure and do so stealthily. Yeah, stay dark, yeah. And then have the ability to strike. And of course, and strike when required. And that's that. the whole point of that is that is an enormous deterrent effect. It's like, you just don't know. Are they just outside the harbour, you know? Are they poised to sink you if you dare cross that kinetic threshold? Mm. It's about adding a degree of complexity to your adversary's calculations and plans. Yeah. So I wonder, actually, based on that, and I've been thinking that that, that maybe that statement that maybe I heard or misheard, let's assume, because there yeah. there's a lot of history there that would suggest I probably heard it, I wonder if it's around other capabilities that no, Admiral Meade's been exactly. looking at. It's around harpoons or missiles. Or, 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 on the other technology, the, the hypersonics, yeah. uh, AI. Combat systems combat with the Americans. Systems, yeah, which let's not forget, when we think about our combat mm, systems, we yeah. think we've got a special and unique relationship with the United States. We're having ourselves on. They've got a very similar relationship with the Koreans and with the Japanese. The Japanese and Koreans operate very similar surveillance systems, uh, the digital connectivity between uh, the US and uh, ROKN and the uh, Japanese Maritime Self-Defence Force is almost identical to the one between the Australian Navy and the US Navy, right? The, the point is that there is actually, when you think about it, enormous opportunities for us to collaborate further bilaterally and multilaterally, service-to-service, nation-to-nation on uh, maritime technologies, air-to-air, anti-air technologies, missile defence systems. Undersea cables. Undersea cable protection, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. you know. That's another really big one and it's coming out in my next book, which I'll talk about in a moment. We forget that at the start of the two world wars, the first thing that was done was the cables got cut, Okay. So, and the point was to get people to have to use radios because you could then intercept the radios and you could listen in. Today, we are more cable dependent than ever. Now, most of us yeah. think it's just something in the ether, right? And yet we forget that most of our communications, our banking transactions, the purchases with Amazon or Google or David Jones or Coles or Woolies will have to probably go through a submarine cable and then zip back in a split second, you know, and we take all that for granted. We think it just happens magically in the ether. Well, we think it's all Wi-Fi up to a satellite, right? And when, we know. Actually, it's still mechanical yeah. to some degree. Right? That's exactly right. And when you think about what's happened in the Baltic Sea with the Nord Stream uh, 2 pipeline disruption, We don't know for sure who did that, but what it does demonstrate is if you have a piece of infrastructure in the open sea and it's not in your territorial waters, it's very vulnerable, okay? We've gone from being web-enabled 
to web dependent, mm. to web vulnerable. Mm. And it brings Indonesia straight back into this conversation as it's well, John. It becomes because incredibly important. Straight away, we've got to, you know, either go to them or through them to well, Singapore. Well, much like the cable yeah, in yeah. 1871 that was run between Darwin and Adelaide, mm. right, where did it link to? Batavia, right, now mm. Jakarta, and then on. Yeah. you know, to Singapore and up. So we have failed to reconcile ourselves to our geography and, and we forget we are on the edge of the Indo-Pacific, you know. Uh, we are this transplanted Euro, you know, Anglo-Celtic country uh, primarily, although more and more Asian, engaged and connected with our neighbours, which I'm very supportive of, you know. We're having spent years of myself engaged in that process myself. Uh, it is something we haven't as a nation got our heads around yet. I think it goes a bit more than that, I think, and you and I have spoken about this before. I mean, how many people actually look at a map or have a globe anymore? I mean, it was mandatory that you used to have a map, you know, sellotaped to your desk mm. and you understood where things were. You well, know, as you, you know, Simon, my favourite map is the RAF planning map centred on Darwin yes. but spun 45 degrees to give you a sense of Australia hanging off Asia. And, and then the Indo and the Pacific Oceans framing us and the Southern Ocean, you know, and, um, you know, Rory Metcalf. Rory, talks I about say, Rory's got, Rory's got a very interesting map at the very front end of his recent, you know, his updated contest for the yeah. Indo-Pacific, which yeah. he, uh, why China won't map the future. Well, maybe that's a conversation for another day, but yeah. but Rory's got a map on the inside and the back and it's just fascinating. And and, and not, a, not a lot of people, I think, actually really truly understand where Countries sit in proportion to other countries. Ask your average person on the street today, you know, roughly where, if you were to point, would Singapore be? And quite a few of them probably get it wrong. They'd be way over on the left or the right. <laughs> but, but, but when it comes to things like, you know, planning and force protection, the maritime, the cables, mm. And, mm. and understanding your, you know, your strategy for diplomacy and policy making, it's incredibly important. So it should be mandatory that we all get it sellotaped on a desk, I reckon. I'm going to bring that campaign back. Here, here. <laughs> get my vote of support, Simon. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But so we're seeing these building blocks because of obviously the time horizon to any potential conflict is getting narrower and narrower. Um, and most experts are suggesting that threat window is probably three years. So with that, how agile do you think, John, and transformational in real terms, can the current design... Uh, defence, sorry, uh, strategic review that's been undertaken by Stephen Smith and Sir Angus Houston. How realistic can it be, given the rapid in, you know, I suppose in traditional terms, these developments we're seeing? Because the notion would be, you know, something in three, five years is what you have today is what you fight with. So the only way we're going to combat that, if we think that threat is real, is by building these collaborations around the technology or the capabilities we don't have, but other nations have, and we start to see this sharing. I mean, we did see that announcement just recently in the last 24 hours, um, which, you know, you've, you've been speaking on today in some of the press outlets, um, which has come ahead of the public release of some of the recommendations, and rightly so. But how realistically really can this DSR be, given everything we've just spoke about and what we think is actually really happening in terms of a time perspective? So this all boils down to political will. And if it's worth reflecting on the kinds of decisions that would be made in 1938, okay, 1937, 1938, about building an army, a navy, and an air force. Uh, and there's a really interesting book on this, Armed and Ready by Andrew Ross, about the defence industrial base that we built up in the late 1930s because mm. we didn't have it in the prior to the First World War mm. and we relied on the Brits to do it. But then we weren't thinking of having to fight in our patch. 
except to you know, Australian Naval Military Expeditionary Force to rebel in August 1914 when the German fleet fled. Um, and why did they flee? Because Creswell and, you know, the Australian government had the wisdom in ordering the first fleet, the first Royal Australian Naval Fleet, mm-hmm. which arrived in 1913, mm-hmm. to be able to outgun the German Asiatic fleet. We forget that. HMAS Australia had bigger, longer-ranged guns than anything Germany had in the Pacific. So when it came to the crunch, when war was declared, the German East Asiatic fleet is ordered home, right? Mm-hmm. And they flee. They don't stop to defend Rebel. They flee across, they fly they the Battle of Coronel off yeah. the coast of Valparaiso. They sink a portion of the Royal Navy and then they go around and get walloped in the Battle of the Falklands, you know, in November 1914 on their way back up the Atlantic. Mm. Had we had our druthers, it's a very interesting, you know, what if. Yeah, sure. But if the Royal Australian Navy had not been sent to um, escort the, the first AIF across the Indian Ocean, they may well have been tasked to track down the Germans across the Pacific, which was being monitored over the airwaves. Mm, mm. So the point about comparing with 1938, if you had in 1938 said, we will deliver a naval platform, we will deliver a world-class warship by 1948, right? I mean, think about it. You would have missed the war. What's the point? Mm. So this is about, the question is, how serious are we? Because if we are serious, and this is where I think we do need to listen to the intelligence analysis yeah. and the threat assessments, how serious is that risk of something happening in three years or four years? Because I'm not saying it's going to happen in three years. I don't think it will. And everyone's guessing, right? It's, it's a calculated, educated suite of guessing, but we're so, still guessing. And it's premised on the capability. Because, you know, intelligence analysts, what they do is they look at capability in broad terms. When you're looking at an adversary, you're looking at two things, mm-hmm. capability and intent. What are they saying they're going to do? What are they behind closed doors secretly striving and planning for? Okay. Mm. But what can they do? That's a key one. And what we're seeing in the key one, that's where you're talking the three-year, maybe four-year time frame. By 26, 27, they will be able to launch a massive invasion attack on Taiwan where despite America's best efforts, they probably won't be able to stop them. And, well, Hal Brands has got a very fascinating counter-argument to that, and he wrote that, I can't remember the title of his book that he released last year, which is China is not a rising defence force, it's a peaking defence force. Yes, yes. And, so, actually, and China generally only traditionally would react in terms of military prowess externally when times are bad, not when their st- times are good and right. they're strong. And, and I agree, Hal's right on yeah. that. So the point, yeah. from, from, my, from my perspective, the point is that if we're only looking at capability, we're missing the point because the capability exists, in my view, to pursue China's strategy, which is more like a game of Go than a game of chess. It's not so much Clausewitz and annihilation. Mm. It's about Sunza and defeating uh, Acme of Skill being to defeat your adversary without fighting. So I'm not anticipating a war on Taiwan in 26, but I am anticipating a lot of pressure, right? Yeah, and yeah. that pressure, if you, are, if you we, uh, the collective we, are not in a position to actually offer de- a credible deterrence, then it may well invite adventurism. That's the point. 
And I think we've got that deterrence, though, is building right this second, irrespective of what we do with our money and our programs through these collaborations, whether or not it's with, you know, AUKUS or Orc Japan Quad, or Canada. India. Right. The Malabar activities. Because it's a classic force multiplier. All of a sudden all we've of got these what things, we want. All of these things are all contributing to uh, complicating the planning of the PLA and their, their, their strategic forces thinking about how you win in a Taiwan scenario. That's the whole point. So what I think we need to be doing is adding to the degree of complexity to China's plans. So that, that then makes it less likely that they will attack because the more you diminish the prospect of a successful attack, the more you put off the prospect of it happening, Yes. except in the case of a madman. And I don't see Xi as mad. I don't see Xi as nearly as adventurous as Putin either. No. There's a strong track record of differentiation between the two. You know, it's Putin who invaded, who took Crimea in 2014 and invaded Donbass, uh, and, and it's Russia that's, you know, basically destroyed Syria, uh, let alone uh, what they've done in Chechnya and in the attacks in Georgia, let alone the way they've allowed war to go on between uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia. Yeah. Bit of artistic license on my part here based on what Hal wrote about last year, but it's, it's, it's it, there could be a kind of a weird irony here yeah. with China yeah. in the sense that it's taken them this long to build their military prowess capability, both in terms of its what it can do yeah. and how much, you know, the volume of it. Yeah. And we know that. We've been seeing the, the city, you know, manufacturing build-up. Conversely, they're now starting to see the negative impacts of the one-child policy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the, and the very rapidly ageing population. Much like Japan. Right. Yeah. You know, and it's kind of like, in my mind, when, when the military capabilities hit the right point, they've all of a sudden don't have the population to... The worrying point is that that may well then drive them to accelerate plans before things get worse. Or or accelerate their collaborations, whether or not that's with, you know, Russia, as we've seen, or maybe the Iranians who have started to yeah, hang around a bit. I actually see this Pacific uh, little venture from Iran as uh, kind of paralleling the NATO countries' visits of the, the Queen Elizabeth, the Bremen, uh, the, the, the various, the German, the Dutch, the French, the British warships uh, in East Asian waters in support of the US policy and, and J Japan. And so you're talking about the, the, the presence of the, uh, the 86 flotilla that's been down here recently. Exactly, the Iranian flotilla. Okay, you, you could argue that that's a similar, and you have, that that's, you know, no different. But where I would probably say there is a difference with the Iranians is that They've recently launched that, um, the ship launch, loitering munition, uh, mm. apparently the Ababil 2 suicide drone uh, to attack a simulated naval base, which turns out actually to be a Looks complete a replica of his, like an Israeli, Israeli naval, which it completely destroyed as part of their Iranian army Zolvagar 1401 exercise. Now, the UK wouldn't do that. So I, I, I just, there's a bit of Brinkman. Oh, yeah, no, no. So there's complete, some Brinkman I, going no, I, there I recognise, well. and I didn't, by drawing a no, parallel, no, no, I didn't sure. mean to put them in the same camp because, it's, you know, very yeah. clear distinction to be made. But I'm just wondering, again, it comes back to the macro politics and thought process of Xi here is that, you know, he's, 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 all these little parts of his jigsaw mm. are just not quite fitting. They're not quite delivering. No. And, and of course the friends without limits kind of commitment at the winter at the olympics in in beijing just before the outbreak of the war in ukraine yeah. uh it looked like a pretty cynical but clever move to capitalize on what looked like 
to be a lay-down Mazer victory mm. for the Russians in Ukraine mm. has, you know, yeah. clearly yeah. now haunting them. Because yeah. the, what, what people forget is that, you know, while China is is able to leverage a lot of economic influence, they have squandered the idea of soft power uh, and goodwill. And a lot of countries now are much more wary of China because this is the same country that has signed an agreement with that odious kleptocrat Putin. So what else are they prepared to do? Quite. Yeah, absolutely. That's an interesting point. And I just think Mm. we're going to see a whole bunch of twists and turns in 2023, just like we did in 2022, because, you know, this rapidly evolving, like literally is, is every day it changes. Yeah. I left the office the other night, last night, and then woke up this morning to see that we'd made an announcement on a defence acquisition ahead of the release of the DSR, which is the right thing to do. It's not a shock, but I I use it as a poor example, I suppose, but but just things are changing rapidly um, and we just don't know what's going to happen. And... There was a piece, um, someone, again, you might know, senior China fellow at the Norwegian Institute for Defence Studies, uh, mm. Joeing Beckenvold. Yeah, really uh, interesting. Yeah, wrote a very fascinating piece in foreignpolicy.com mm. on the 29th mm. of December. Yeah, he and did. just coming back to really that China piece there, analysing five ways that the current US-China Cold War will be different from the last one, obviously the Russian one, and it will shift from a post-Cold War unipolar power position to a bipolar power structure. So just for simple terms, John, for myself and our listeners, what does that actually mean? And then noting our own, I suppose, internal case of, you know, having bipolar here with our trade and defence and that may be changing. What does that new paradigm mean if that projection is correct? Mm. What does that mean for us and our intelligence community as well beyond? So it's important to get the context right. And remember that the Cold War, which most of us didn't experience, Mm. was a, a time when... The world was really in two economic camps, not just strategic camps. So if you were living behind the Iron Curtain, the, relatively speaking, there was not that much trade. Yes, you could buy wheat from Australia in, in moderate quantities, but by and large, these were two separate economies. You know, we used to talk about the first world, the third world, the second world was the Soviet world, right? This is what we forget, the communist world. And it was pretty much, uh, you know, vacuum sealed, if you like. Mm. It, it was quite separate. Uh, I, I remember once going to Ber- East Berlin for a very brief one-day visit, eerie experience, but yeah. it was kind of, it spoke to, you know, it was the exception that spoke, confirmed the rule, you know. It was a very different world. And what we're facing today, and this is, I think, that Beckerwald gets to, is that um, the world today, it, there are limits to the utility of seeing what we face today as being a new Cold War because, you know, he talks about the the, the significant changes um, about an unstable power transition, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But going back to your point about intelligence assessments, th- there is a, there's a risk of, you know, seeing history as repeating. I don't see history repeating. I see it as rhyming. And the, the judgment that the intelligence analysts and, and, you know, policymakers have to exercise is in discerning how much of the historical patterns have utility for a contemporary application because they never are absolute, they're never cut and dry, they're never complete. There are always limits to the utility of that. Mm. As a historian myself, I am a huge fan of understanding history to inform your world today, but let's not get caught in thinking that everything looks like Munich 1938. 
because not everything does. Don't drink the full Kool-Aid on this one. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, but that, you know, that, that leaves us with, well, what, what are we facing? And, you know, this is why Beckerwald's article is so, so relevant for us to discuss because it's, mm. this isn't the full to gap. You know, which which is the what was seen as the breakthrough point where the Soviet, the Warsaw Pact countries would steam across the the Fulda Gap into West Germany, um, and the Spetsnaz forces would be deployed further into the depth, and the and the you know the Soviet fleet would cut off the reinforcements coming across the Atlantic, uh, and, and NATO had to be prepared, so they had to be forward deployed, and you needed the trip forces, and you needed tactical nukes because you couldn't get enough combat power in Europe across the Atlantic from North America in time to do the job. Now it's different. Now it's a naval problem, not a land problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a, a, a reduction, if you like, of a complex situation because obviously there's, there's land, there's air, and now he makes the point too, there's space and there's cyber. So this is now a, a different beast. And, of course, when we talk about space and cyber, as I said before, you know, we've gone from being web-enabled to web-dependent and in turn we've become web-vulnerable to an extent to which, you know, you and I, we, we live by our, our phones, our devices. Incredibly dependent we've become on these things, our banking, our shopping. You know, I don't have a street map in my car anymore. I've I got use... a Tesla. I'm so dependent on right. it. Right. Okay, there you go. As soon as my phone goes, I can't get in it. Right, right. <laughs> so smash the know, window and go back to the old way. But, I can't you know, hotwire this, it, though. This gets to, uh, <laughs> this is not something that is managed and run by the West, you know, we've we've got a, a, a situation where we've got interdependence, and he talks about this interest yes. in the article, and the prospect of the risk of war perhaps being greater because of the greater interdependence. So you know, and this is the problem the Germans have. You know, they make their Volkswagens and their Mercedes, where in China, right? Mm. Where and where are the Teslas made in China? Where are the iPhones being? Oh, they're moving out of China, but you know, the idea that. We can contain this in the way we did the Cold War. And that's nonsense. So this that's is the multipolar sort of position the Germans have sort of said that we're moving to. Yeah. Is, is, in the article, right? Yeah, and that's exactly right. So, and it's a complicated one because, is, yeah. you know, if you want to influence what's happening in, in Russia, you have to also influence what's happening in China, but they have influence over what you do as well because of your investments in China and your trade with China. And in our case, you know, it's our largest trading partner. We want China to prosper. We just don't want it to go to war, right? (laughs) This is the tension between the national security paradigm and the economic paradigm. Well, the Chinese, and just on that point though, John, you say the word war, you know, China will defend and say... We have no intention of going to war. We're just going back to reclaim what's rightfully ours. So it also the question is, what do we mean by war? Right. Yeah. And I don't mean... And what do we mean is, by invasions? Yes, eye, big that's eye as right, well. exactly. You know, because we've all taken our eye off Hong Kong still. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, what's going on there? Well, we you know, <laughs> we, we used to worry about Tibet. You know, that's kind of dropped off the conversation. And now we talk a little bit about Xinjiang and the Uyghurs and to a certain extent Hong Kong. And I think China's kind of hoping that much like with Tibet, which went off the ball because of the pressures they applied, that people will eventually forget this, you know, and it will go away. And much like we forgot about Tiananmen, because remember in 1989, there was enormous uproar about what was happening and then we just couldn't help ourselves. We just, we turned a blind eye. The Hong Kong one, though, is, is interesting because they actually did renegade on the agreement with the Brits when Chris Patton, who was the governor then, and, you know, it was a 50-year or something. Yeah, yeah 50-year agreement. Yeah, yeah, well, they 
they, they whip that away. And, and, you know, and Xi Jinping has been making similar sort of statements, which can be inferred, not going to keep passing the Taiwan issue to the next generation. So, infer, I'm going to deal with it. Yeah, the problem here, of course, is that with breaking the agreement on Hong Kong, it broke the model for Taiwan because the one country, two systems idea vaporized. And any kind of political will there might have been in Taiwan to make concessions to accommodate China was completely uh, destroyed. There's no political will in China, in Taiwan for some kind of one country, two systems yeah, compromise because it's yeah. just, you know, the proof's in the pudding. Yeah, yeah. And we will defend democracy, which comes back to those core values. Mm. And I know Paul Mitchell in episode three talked very much about, you know, the core values of the Western society are vulnerable, but at the same time, we can switch that and make them extremely strong if we so stand by them. I caution about talking just about values, though, right. because it's about interests as well. And our interests are intimately connected to our values. Um, and our interests are actually about staying a free and open society. And a regionally trading one, which happens exactly. to be on the sea for so, us. And right? on that front, you know, we can't let values drive everything because we still actually want to trade with this autocratic, you know, one-party state. Uh, we actually like trading with them and we don't want to, you know, lord it over them with our moral rectitude too much because let's face it, everybody loves a good set of double standards and Australia's, you know, got its fair share of them over our handling a whole range of issues, not least of which is the First Nations and our history with the Pacific, you know. And Vladimir Putin in the early days of the invasion of Ukraine was very vocal Absolutely. about that, you know. So that, that it's really important in my view, that we not overplay our hand on values. This is why I'm a bit wary of uh, the Biden, you know, the, the democracy club because, you know, some of them aren't necessarily all that democratic and, but some of them, you know, the countries that actually want the United States to remain engaged in Asia, for instance, most of them are quite autocratic but they want the US to remain engaged because it means they don't have to be completely beholden to China. And but they like, you know, America's a very attractive country. Apart from, you know, there are aspects of it that have been very deeply worrying in the last few years, not least of which is the, the Trump phenomenon and, and the gun culture. Which may come back apparently. Who yeah, knows? that's right. <laughs> but, you know, the United States remains an incredibly attractive country. It is a country that absorbs millions of migrants and refugees every year. Uh, it Its soft power remains very, very powerful, dented, but still very, very powerful. And and China's got nothing on them and neither does Russia. You know, what's the what's the inflow versus the outflow in Russia or China? Come on. Yeah. You know. And I think Joe makes that point in his article that the, the, the US, and we've heard this before, have, have you know, recognised that China is, is an equal superpower now. Exactly. Whereas, you know, traditionally and historically before, the US would pretty much say they're the only superpower. So even that rhetoric and that movement of language is very important. And, and it's a big and shift positive. for the United States. You yeah. Know? And it's very interesting. Yes. You know, we've now got Kevin Rudd as our uh, ambassador-designate, mm. mm. and he's been calling out the United States in the last couple of days uh, about uh, the way, you know, their their own uh, appreciation for a good set of double standards, you know, ones that apply to them and ones that apply to the others. And it's appropriate that we as a country that wants to see the United States remain actively engaged in the region and to facilitate that engagement, we need to be able to speak truth to power as well. Absolutely. So I'm going to put you on the spot as we seek to come to a bit of an end here. Um, I'm not going to ask you for everything that's going to happen in 2023, because uh, if you knew that, I'd ask for the numbers of the lottery this week as well. But 
the defense strategic review. Yeah. So with everything we spoke about, everything we know in this industry, the bottom line is it's not, you know, land campaigns are probably third, you know, in terms of, you know, where we need to beef up and priorities. Mm. So air and sea. And, and cyber and space, we can put those to, to slightly one side, but just as important. Where do you think we're going to be, you know, in terms of that ability to step up and prepare for an eventual uh, outcome we don't want to see? We've got all these other sort of defense cooperation agreements to sort of do the force multiplier and accelerator. That's all great. But from our own perspective, what are we going to recommend? So I'm worried. And what are we going to accept? I'm worried on two fronts. I'm worried that um, Stephen Smith and uh, Serangus Houston will be too timid. They are people who have a long-standing record of conservative, uh, cautious policy moves. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because when they were both appointed very early on, it was almost like well, we've actually got two people the same. When yeah. really, for this review, you wanted two opposites. Yes, so you? we're not. Yeah, we're yeah, not. I don't think we're going to see a radical shift. My other concern is that we may see a, a situated appreciation. You know. Should be the other way around. You you look at the you appreciate the situation rather than situate the appreciation. If you situate an appreciation, in other words, if you if you premise your thinking on a expectation, one or two expectations of what an adversary might do, and you build your capabilities around that one or two mm. likely scenarios, you then, in in effect, generate vulnerabilities that the that adversary will then look to exploit. So if you, and it, you know, there's ideas out there, let's just invest in subs and JSFs. Well, guess what? If you do that, your adversary is no, going to know that that's not where you're going to hit them. You're going to, you go for, you go for, this is classic strategy. You, you are, you're just to go for the weak point. You don't go for the hard point. So if, if, if we were to invest in, you know, as some, some have suggested, just JSFs and, and submarines, well, then, of course, a whole range of scenarios in the Pacific, in Southeast Asia, could emerge where they are completely irrelevant. And here we go again, not learning a lesson from history, and we failed. Bingo. Right. Yeah. So we need to be careful about not situating the appreciation. But the other thing is we do, I think, need to remember from history is that our geography has not changed. When we last faced an existential challenge, it happened in the Indonesian archipelago and in the islands around Papua New Guinea and Bougainville and Solomon Islands. Now, we forget the Solomons bit because when Nimitz and MacArthur had their spat and divvied up the map of the Pacific in 1941... Took a lesson from the Brits there, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, well, they, you know, they, they couldn't stand each other. They couldn't be seen together. And so they had to divide up the Pacific. And they drew this line that basically went north-south through the Solomon Islands, cutting part of it off to give to MacArthur in the southwest Pacific area and the rest, including Guadalcanal, now Honiara, Solomon Islands, uh, to Nimitz and the Navy, the US Navy. Interestingly enough, we forget about this. So New Zealand was on the other side of that line. Sure, yeah. So in the First World War, you know, we have Anzac, the legend of Anzac. We don't have that in the Second World War. Why? Because the Kiwis get cut out of the equation. They're, they're, they are, they're on the same team, but they're, they're playing on, the on a different they're pitch. Playing, they're yeah. playing with Nimitz. Yeah. If they're not playing in the yeah. Mediterranean, you know, in North Africa and, and Italy, that they're playing with Nimitz and not with us, interestingly. But for us, when we think about the Pacific, the Coral Sea kind of features a little bit, but it's really the Americans. Why? Mm. Because it's in Nimitz's turf, right? It's largely a Nimitz battle. It's not a MacArthur battle. And yes, there's a couple of Australian warships featuring there, but Australia 
barely features, okay? And this is something Paul Keating tried to push, you know, tried to shift, get the shift away of the folk, the iconography, if you like, of war from Gallipoli to Kokoda. I'm sorry, folks, but Kokoda was a sideshow. The main effort, and you think about it, what was the Japanese main effort in 1942? They had their headquarters in Rabaul, which they seized quickly. You know, we took it off the Germans back in 19, August 1914 pretty quickly. We didn't defend it properly. We, you know, we put a token force there and it wasn't a joint force either. So there was no air force, there was no navy, and there was a few ground troops undefended without all the right kit. Doomed, doomed, right? The Japanese set up their headquarters in Rabaul and, you know, we forget why were the Japanese starving on the Kokoda track? Why? Because it wasn't their main effort. How many thousands of Japanese troops were being sent, the convoys of ships going from Rabaul yeah, right. down to Guadalcanal to reinforce the effort at Guadalcanal where the Marines and the US Navy did the brunt of the fighting? You know, that was the main effort for Japan. So yes, Kokoda was consequential, but it wasn't nearly as consequential as Guadalcanal. And that's the other thing. Why? Why did the Japanese do that? Japan realised that they couldn't take on Australia, they couldn't conquer Australia because we had an army of several divisions. By January 1943, we had 14 divisions, right? The IJN and IJA, the Imperial Japanese Navy and Army, they did their math and thought we can't take it on and win, right? But we can isolate it potentially. So block them off in the Indian Ocean, Cocos Christmas, Right and Blade the man, not the Java and Singapore, and on the other side, block them off at, at Guadalcanal and maybe in New Caledonia if you get which I couldn't get. So the Battle of Guadalcanal is very consequential. Now that's because it was the line, direct line between Australia and North America. So if you wanted to isolate Australia from the US ally, you had to block the path of the ships and the aircraft transiting from North America. Right? Guess what? The real estate's the same. Okay. Now, no one's saying we're going to have a repeat of the Battle of Guadalcanal. I do not envisage that. But I do envisage a more subtle, more nuanced play on power and influence in the Pacific to make it more difficult for Australia to exercise agency and freedom alongside its principal ally, the United States. And that's a massive point, which we'll have to dig into next year, because in the time frame, that Stephen Smith and Sarangas Houston have looked at the DSR, which is forced posture and positioning, and we've got these collaborations of these other nations in this building block. You know, the engagements with the outside defence, and I'm sure they've done that with DFAT and the agencies to get that intelligence in. Mm. But we're talking about a posture for a threat, right? An yeah. external threat that we're asking them to do in six months. Yeah. When, when really most of the press is just focused on, you know, oh, are we going to, sack off, you know, the hunter class and are we so, going to get a Type 45 or... Yeah, they're almost the mind the points though, aren't they? Because the real points are, you know, what is, what is our position as a, as a, as a defence force led by, you know, Air Force and Maritime in this sense going forward? That They're the real ones. So can I just qualify that though? Because sure. this is, I think, it's really important that we not lose sight of the fact that in the maritime space and in the airspace, you still need the land force. And this is something, there's a kind of thing, oh, you know, people say, oh, there's nothing to learn from Ukraine because we're not a mar land power in the middle of Asia or Eurasia, right? Well, that's missing the point. If we want, you know, Battle of Guadalcanal, it happens at sea and in the air, but it's about an island and it's about controlling Henderson Airfield. 
Henderson Airfield was the critical piece of real estate the Japanese wanted to hold so that they could then dominate the airspace and the maritime space between and interdict things between Australia and North America, right? Mm-hmm. This is a really important point. This is what, it so is heard, because we all were expecting the yeah. army here to get a right slashing yeah. so, in the, in the but DSR, if you think aren't about we, it, you know, from a budget perspective. Yeah, we, we expect that and we yeah. think, oh, it's all about yeah. it, sea and mar- air and maritime. But it's got to be around islands, right? And it, particularly when you think about the F-35. Now, the F-35 is a great piece of kit as far as it goes, but it's got really limited range. If we are going to operate it anywhere we're going to have to lily pad through either the archipelago or the Pacific Islands, right? So where are you going to lily pad to? You've got to lily pad it through a secure airfield. And who's going to secure that airfield? Well, let's just think about and it. And it's Ambon, okay? We tried to secure it in 1941, right? Why did we try to secure it? Because the Japanese are going to use it. In the UK, we'd call the bootnecks would go and secure that, John. (laughs) But let's not forget, in 1941, we thought we'd deploy forces there because we didn't want Japan to get it to use to bomb us. Guess what? They took it and they used it to bomb us, right? Ambon. Same with a number of other spots around the archipelago. Same with Rabaul, and that's why they wanted to get, you know, uh, Moresby and, uh, and elsewhere. It was to bomb us, right? So if you want to stop the archipelago being used or even if you want to help a country like Indonesia Mm. to stand up to Mm. somebody intimidating or bullying or blackmailing you, you need a force that you can say, hey, we can actually be your partner. We can help you. If we want our JSFs to be useful, they've got to be able to lily pad, they've got to operate through the archipelago. So if you want to do a defensive Ambon, if you want to defend Mm. a 3,000-metre airstrip, You've got to do it out to the range of at least about a 120-millimetre mortar, which is about a 10-kilometre circumference around that airstrip. That's a honking big piece of real estate. And what are you going to do it with? You're not going to do it with, you know, Some airfield defence guards no, <laughs> or the airfield defence guards. You'll need – it's about a brigade-sized force to defend an Ambon-sized airfield. Okay, and make sure that the JSFs that operate in and through that in a hypothetical scenario do it without getting crumped. Okay, that's where this uh, the high Mars, and uh, that's where they really come in on their own. You need to be able to operate an airfield where you guarantee a bubble around that airfield so that any Australian aircraft operating there or any vessels that come into the port nearby have as much where you can have complete overmatch. The idea that, oh, we'll just rely on the Navy to do this or the Air Force, why would you rely on, why would you not try and completely dominate the space and win and make sure that every Australian you put in danger comes home alive? And because that's, we didn't do that in 1941. All of those Australians that went to Ambon, to Rabaul, to Java, to mm. Singapore, guess what? If they didn't die... They had an awful existence in captivity. That never needs repeating, absolutely. And guess what? The geography hasn't changed. Now, the tactics probably have, and the prospects of war in that nature are not saying are likely, but this is the whole point. Why do we have the Defence Force? It's an insurance policy. It's about deterring a would-be adversary from uh, doing things that we don't want them to do. And in extremists, being prepared to force them. And if we're going to do that, we need a balanced force that's got cyber, that's got space, it's got the ability to lily pad through the archipelago and survive the experience. 
A couple of points there. So really the announcement ahead of the release of the public recommendation in March of the DSR of, you know, what we saw last night is positive. Yeah. Right? However, I am also concerned. First of all, I don't envy the task that Stephen Smith and Angus oh, Susan have had. It's tough. It's almost impossible yeah, job. Absolutely. Because you've got a minister who's gone on the record saying that, you know, and I can't quite remember his phrase at the moment about, you know, transforming the defence force in terms of what he can do. Yeah. I don't think all of those factors have been thought about because it's almost if you're a betting man down at the pokers, it's like, well, army's going to lose. Yeah. Because a lot of the money's going to go. Which is a reductionist interpretation of a much more nuanced set of circumstances. Well, we're just just moving, you know, the steaming problem to another area, really. Yeah. So then it goes back to your, I think, your observation at the start, correct if I'm wrong, John, about the conservative nature. Um, And I think, you know, Stephen Smith and Sir Angus Hughes, very intelligent people, would have probably spotted this whole conundrum very early on. And I've probably just tweaked the edges. So what what are we? So we're not really going to see a lot. We uh, might see a couple of headline grabbers. Yes, and hopefully, um, hopefully, an acceleration of projects. To my mind, I'll get back to my point about right. decisions we were making in 1938. We cannot be planning for this to take 10 to 20 years. We I've need got this. a quick remedy for that, by the way. Good. Once we make a decision in defence and it gets signed up by the NSC, no government minister or new administration should ever be able to cancel it. Right. No, exactly. <laughs> Stay we, away. We, Let we, us deliver it. it, it, it we've been playing political football <laughs> I'm just gonna say, with yeah. the future security of the nation and we've been doing it for nearly two decades. Mm. And look, to be fair, no one really noticed because really there was no accounting for this because you know, we've lived in this post-Cold War unipolar moment where the United States has done the heavy lifting and we've kind of contributed around the edges and not really had to think about the existential challenge that, you know, that we faced back in 1941-42. It's just like it's been completely off the radar scope. It's back on. It's not going to look like 41 or 42, but the scale of the challenge is up there. Fascinating. I mean, it's going to be... So interesting to see what really comes out mm. of this DSR in March. I mean, even when it comes out, how long it's going to take to actually implement it. You know, yeah. There's yeah. people talking about contracts are going to have to be severed because they've got to lose their money and new contracts placed. I mean, the whole thing sounds like a bugger's muddle, really. Bowl mm. of jelly, really. Mm. Don't envy it at all. Uh, and we just have the conviction to get through. But like you say, we've got to keep it balanced. Otherwise, mm. why bother? So I'd love to have you back next year. Well, no, say next year, this year. Yeah. Uh, when we see what comes out and have a have a chat Talk about that because mm. then we can go to stage two and go, okay, what does this really mean? Because mm. no doubt we'll see some more global developments between now and March as well. Who knows when the next site and vendor will occur. But, 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 but clearly <laughs> the, for me, I think, you know, we are a maritime nation. We have to make sure we've got that right capability, but it does rely and need air and land. Mm. But one of the biggest things in this review isn't actually about the acquisitions as such. Mm. It's about that posture and that position and getting DFAT some legs again yeah. and building those relationships. And Penny, you know, Penny Wong. Penny's been doing a pretty masterful job. <sighs> Superb. Yeah, it's Superb amazing. what she's achieved in you know, like six no, months. You know, so, but Indonesia, we mentioned in this, yeah. absolutely critical. Getting out to the Solomon Islands and building those. I, I see that as the two left and right, you know, yeah. soccer teams in this, yeah. in this uh, collaboration with Japan at the top and Canada and the US. And, and, and look, India's got a role to play here too. India's really interesting playing its engagement in the Pacific. 
Uh, it's got quite a diaspora in the Pacific as well, which we forget about sometimes, particularly in Fiji, but other places. As well. Yeah, uh, it's interested, it's engaged, it's concerned, and it recognises that this is a competition. And this is, you know, I think a useful point to bear in mind mm. when we think about the, we talk about war and non-war, right? And we're a bit binary in the West. China isn't doesn't view it that way, and I think it's better to think about it as a. It goes a continuity between collaboration and competition and, and friendship to uh, a more uh, uh, contested, conflictual end of the spectrum, you know, where you short, maybe short of kinetic and they may be even kinetic. And there's in between there, there's healthy competition. One of the things about the Cold War, had it not been for the competition of the Cold War, we probably wouldn't have put a man on the moon in 1969. Absolutely. So competition isn't all bad, you know. It's vital in, in sport. It's vital in, uh, on, on a whole range of levels. And it's actually helped prompt uh, a level of engagement in the Pacific uh, you know, people say, oh, you're only doing this before because of China. And look, I think to a certain extent there is some truth to that, but I say bring it on. It's helped wake up Australia to the need to be respectful and engaging and constructive with our neighbours. It's in our interests. And, and here's the, the other thing, you know, I talk about this in the SWOT analysis. It's not just about great power contestation. We are facing the prospect of looming environmental catastrophe and we're facing a spectrum of global governance challenges, not just terrorism, people smuggling, drug smuggling, but the breakdown of law and order and transnational criminal groups. And when you add all of those three, those three dimensions of great power contestation, looming environmental catastrophe and a spectrum of governance challenges, man, you've got a whole lot of problems there, right? And this is the thing, it's not going to look like 1942, but it's going to require the kind of commitment that we saw in 1942. So a final point then, and you can close out with um, the publication that's coming out next year, mm. DSR. Mm. We'll put space to one side. Is ASD going to get a pump full of money in the cyber world on this as well? Because you're absolutely right. If we think about how the world is developing and what's actually really going to be required, are we just still thinking so traditional with hard mechanical platforms yeah. where really we should be putting a load of money into the space agency and ASD and our cyber capabilities. Are they going to be a winner in this or are they a poor relation in this review? They have to be a winner as well. The, the days of having three domains of warfare mm. are gone. We now have to. It's imperative. We've taken into consideration space and cyber. And woven all through that is the human dimension. We need people to understand this and to operate in this space who actually have the five dimensions in mind and who think about jointery, about a combined teaming of defence and national assets and coalition assets with the five dimensions in mind. And, and we've got to get away from you know, thinking, oh, I'm, I'm a maritime guy or I'm an air guy or I'm a land guy. If that's what you're thinking, that's 20th century thinking and it's out of date and it's actually unhelpful. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the great things, I think, is that we, in, this is John uh, Malcolm Fraser, mm. he's do get some credit for this. He set up the Australian Defence Force Academy. He made the decision to set up the Defence Force Academy and we, in that, by doing that, we set ourselves up for, for a path towards jointry whereby inter-service rivals start out as friends and trusted colleagues before the rivalry blocked the friendship. If you look at back at the ADF, the Australian Defence Force of the 1970s and 80s, 
the inter-service rivalry was toxic, absolutely toxic. Yeah. Now we've got a generation and all the senior leadership in defence now, in uniformed leadership now, are almost all of them ADFA graduates. Mm -hmm. They've grown up with as friends. With that integration in mind. And uh, uh, the recognition that actually for the defence of Australia, it's no longer just about being able to in be interoperable with the US and UK counterparts. It's about being able to, as an Australian team, work in the neighbourhood in Southeast Asia and the Pacific. So you think the DSR will refund Red Spice? I don't think there's or any... Should. Red Spice I is... A, I think question, really, isn't Red it? Spice is going to happen. The question is whether they get some sliced off it because it's not... I don't think it's feasible for them to be able to recruit that many people that quickly. It's, an, it's a noble ambition and it is important that we actually resource cyber fully. But here's the other thing. Cyber domain is not just about ASD. We've got the Information Warfare Division and we've got the Army, Navy and Air Force dimensions that uh, electronic warfare has been, the, the EW has been the baby where it's resided, where, you know, I, I make the point in my coming book that SIGINT and EW has been the hearth from which cyber has emerged. The transition from the analog world to the digital world, the computer world that was in that domain has been where cyber has sprung from. Okay, now that happens that those functions happen in the Army, Navy and Air Force as well. So when we think about Red Spice, we can't just be thinking about public servants in ASD or the Australian Cyber Security Centre. We need to be thinking about the cyber team. And my concern is, I'll be brutally frank, is there's not enough of that at the moment. Yeah, no, absolutely. And obviously there's a space dynamic in there as well, and, you know, as we invest in that and what that means in the downlink. So um, just to close out then, John, because um, it's been a fascinating conversation and um, we could talk for, for hours, quite mm. frankly, and um, we certainly should continue these conversations offline and come back. But um, so the book, you mentioned the book, The Official History of ASIO, which is a fascinating read. And thank uh, you. got a couple of volumes in front of us here. And thank you for signing those, by the way. So, yeah, what's the next uh, publication? So the next publication is called Revealing Secrets, an Unofficial History of Australian Signals Intelligence and the Advent of Cyber. Right. And that's coming out at the beginning of May with UNSW Press. Very excited about that. And it's Claire Bergen and I as co-authors. Um, and uh, that speaks to many of the points we've been talking about, the significance of the region, significance of understanding, the significance of intelligence, the significance of signals intelligence and computers as the hearth of cyber. The, the springboard of cyber uh, and um, interesting the transformation of this once very secretive body, mm. the Australian Signals Directorate. Right? Mm. What is that? It's a, it's, a, it's, it's a cover name. You know, the original one was Defence Signals Bureau, mm. which is a cover for Defence Signals Intelligence Bureau, right? And a body of introverted technocrats by and large who then, you know, with the, with the advent of of computers and the digital era and the advent of cyber and the go world going from web enabled to web dependent to web vulnerable, this, the hearth of cyber in Australian government, the ASD, had to reinvent itself as a outward facing, publicly engaged servant of the people as a facilitator for cybersecurity. Was that in the 70s, wasn't that? Like, uh, uh, or was it a bit later than that? No, later, 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 yeah, later. Considerably later. Yeah. Yeah. I know yeah. their tweet was quite funny, or their LinkedIn, long-time listener, first-time transmission. That was, that, was, that, was, that was quite funny. That was, that was when Mike Burgess <laughs> was Director General. Yeah, he, he really was a significant I like that transformative. Sense of humor. 
Yeah, it was great. But I mean, the the we go out of that. We we leave the analog era in the nineties. Mm. It's really in the nineties that we see analog phased out and mobile phones go are analog in the 90s they become digital in the late 90s uh, the internet is happening in the early to mid 90s it's really come of its own by the turn of the millennium uh, and then the next two years we go from being clunky computers on our desk mm-hmm. to phones in our hand that are that are you know have everything the tandy store of the 1970s had the full the full catalogue yes. in the palm of your yeah, hand. Yeah, I think I've got about yeah. five rows and two aisles yeah, yeah. of technology in my hand now. Extraordinary transformation. As we mentioned at the start, my, as I'm getting older, it's my birthday tomorrow, actually, and we're recording this on the 5th of January. If Happy anyone's birthday interested. for tomorrow. Yeah, thank you, John. But uh, the ends of my fingers have stopped working on my phone for some reason. I don't, I don't know what's it's going on It's a cyber attack. It's a cyber attack. Well, well, it's even worse when you own a Tesla. The whole damn thing's on the right <laughs> But uh, no, I look forward to that book and um, we will certainly, when it's out, so um, A&I will absolutely... And, and of course, the, na- the Navy, the maritime domain features ex- yeah, extensively in this, in this way as well. Yeah. Lots of really fun anecdotes to draw out as well. No, I shall um, be an avid reader and chew that one up when it comes out. Great, Simon. Well, unfortunately, that is where we're going to have to leave it for today. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation, and I'm sure our listeners and members have as well. I'm sure that 2023 will hold many more developments, and no doubt the odd surprise. John, as always, it's been a pleasure, and thank you very much for joining me today. I look forward to many conversations with you going forward, and I'm sure we would love to have you back for Series 2. Simon, that would be a pleasure and an honour, so thank you for having me on the programme. Our guest today was Professor John Blacksland. If you enjoyed this episode, then please consider rating, reviewing, and following Saltwater Strategists wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more on our website at navalinstitute.com.au. Follow us on social media pages. And if you're not a member of the Australian Naval Institute, then consider signing up today to continue hearing, reading, and attending events covering subjects such as this one today. I've been your host, Simon Wallstrom, and thanks for listening.